Hello and welcome to the Cognitive Engineering Podcast produced by me, Fraser McGrew for Aleph Insights. In this series of podcasts, we take a look at interesting topics and discuss what we think they tell us about analysis and decision making. I'm here with Nick Hare and Peter Coghill of Aleph Insights and our special guest this week, Hugo Marino. And this week we're discussing leading thinkers. this dashing young man in front of us. Um, could you introduce us to Hugo? Who is Hugo? Yeah, well, Hugo's actually the reason that uh, Peter and I met Hugo last year, I think it was, sort of, sort of, towards the end of summer last year, is he's the boy of a uh, former colleague from uh, Defence Intelligence, mm. of, of both uh, Peter and me. Um, and we got chatting, obviously, as you do, and discovered that Hugo has actually had a really interesting job mm. but which shines quite a good sidelight on the top on a on a, de a definitely analytical related topic which is um is there a difference in the way that you should lead people whose job is to is to think versus how you should lead people whose job is to do stuff broadly mm. so so like this is obviously sort of core stuff for us really is is you know what what does thinking involve and uh, how should you lead people who are doing it and and what things do you need to think about? What does good look like? So anyway, I think Hugo's got you know a lot of interesting experience and insights into that, as I'm sure we'll find out. Mm. Well, it's funny you should say that because uh, a few minutes ago, when myself and Hugo met for the first time, there was that glint in one another's eyes. There was that hint of recognition. <laughs> and what I know that Hugo saw in me was clearly a man of action um, and um, leadership. Probably no small amount of physical bravery as well. But, but also thinking. But also a thinker. Yeah. Like an intellectual, <laughs> I hesitate to say it, um, an intellectual giant or yeah. something like that. Um, yeah. Hugo, uh, tell us a bit more about yourself, maybe. Well, thanks so much for having me on. Yeah. Um, I guess I'm technically in the army, but actually probably have done very little of what people would normally associate with the army. So um, all, all of my jobs have really been leading teams or being amongst teams doing analytic outputs, uh, kind of researchy type work, intelligence, that type of stuff. Um, and so, you know, despite the way, despite us wearing kind of green pajamas, uh, the reality is we- I like my green pajamas. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, the reality is I think probably my experience was a lot of what I was taught to do in the army as an army officer, you know, tally bally ho, follow me chaps, all that stuff. Uh, initially probably didn't work particularly well when I started doing the sort of jobs I was given. And so I think, what I'm interested to talk about is is how I learned to adapt that and how I learned to change that and probably become a lot less army in the process, but hopefully a lot more of an effective leader. And that's because the, the areas in the army where you were, you were leading less action-y type persons. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, what those in the military would call a REMP for a rear echelon motherfucker. Exactly. <laughs> um, talking of REMPs. Um, Nick. Um, so couldn't get more rear than my <laughs> echelon. Yeah. I'll tell you that. No, couldn't get more. No, if anyway. we can see the rear echelon, we're yeah. doing something wrong. Yeah. Well, <laughs> it, 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 interestingly, I, I've actually never been as far forward as an echelon. So actually, to call, to call me a REMP is, is actually giving it's, me it's, too much credit. Yeah, yeah. it's a... It's a compliment, yeah. Well, like, my first question is, what? Did, tell us about the leadership training that you had. Then mm. let's start there. Like, what what makes a good lead? What what are they trying to churn out at leadership school? Yeah, so I think um, my experience with Sandhurst was that it, as a main effort, tries to take people down a, a notch or two. It'll the, the, the tagline is kind of break you down and then build you up. And what they're trying to build back up is a sense of worrying more about other people and how you come across to them. 
Uh, and I think probably one of the taglines really is uh, perception is reality. So if someone perceives you to have done something, it doesn't really me matter whether you have or not. You know, the reality is what people actually see of you. Fake it until you make it. Yeah, I think that's a good way of putting it, yeah. Um, what that means, I think, in terms of uh, the cognitive side of leadership is often is, is looking like you're confident in what you're doing, looking like you're sure. And I think probably a lot of military leaders are not super confident in appearing to be unsure about something because actually what you're taught is if you want someone to charge, charge with a bayonet, they've got to know that you're 100% sure that's the mm. right thing to do. Yeah, it's interesting because it feels a bit like um, you're essentially... Tr tricking people into into following you uh, and because that's the actually the right thing to do right mm -hmm. i mean it actually uncertainty is going to undermine people's confidence in the mission they've got right so i mean if you're going to be doing something you presumably you ha it's correct it's the right thing to do to pretend that that thing is absolutely definitely the right thing to do mm. like it, it yeah. you know it, it wouldn't do to say we think this will probably work we're not sure yeah uh, we might all die it's, but it's, come on lads there's also there's also, there's also a sort of feature that uh doctrine boils down to a lot to, to basically any kind of action is better than inaction yeah because even even incorrect action gives other commanders higher up more information about what's actually best to do so that they can throw more men at the problem later on <laughs> or perhaps fewer or fewer yeah so so, yeah. so you, you so you, you learn so rather, rather than being in a state of paralysis uh and not doing anything about it because you're unsure better to go right right i'm 80 percent sure this is the right thing to do follow yeah. me and you go and do something but well, do, i got so most of my military training there's a, a brilliant um uh, military thinker out there uh, it's called Richard Sharp of the, of the <laughs> rifles. And he said, I'm glad you said that, Peter, because he said, you know, any, even a bad decision is better than no decision at all. Mm. Interesting. So, so yeah. yeah. Um, so, you, well, you, Hugo, I, well, I wanted to find out, how did, how did you get on with it? Did it suit you? Well, I, I think I can do it, and I think I did it for a while. And I think what I realised is that um, the, when, you're, when you're in a more analytical team or you've got a kind of cognitive output, let's say, um, if you, if you do that performance, what the impression you're giving is that there are two types of things. The first bracket is things that I know, and then the second bracket are things that can't be known. Right. The problem is, is that a research team should be more concerned about what's in the middle of those two, i.e. things that we don't currently know, but we could find out. So did you, have you ever done any of the kind of traditional leadership type roles or did you go straight into you know intelligence analysis and that kind of thing I, I perform them on exercises but I've never right. done them for real um, and I think it's something that you need in your back pocket because often when you when you're doing more general army type uh, business uh, that's expected of you you know and, and actually uh, you mean like even if it's just getting the photocopying done or something, you're still... <laughs> yeah, absolutely, yeah. I mean, I think maybe one example of this, I briefed a senior uh, sort of, uh, a senior official from, from, from the Foreign Office uh, out in, you know, uh, in Africa and was, um, I, I explained a piece of work that I'd done as, you know, kind of came up front with, and this is what we really don't know about what, in this case, the enemy mm. were doing. Um, and the response came back of, uh, well, I think we need to probably do a bit more work on that then. Mm. And I realized that what, what I was trying to convey was that middle ground of this is what we 
this is what we don't know but could find out. Mm. I think the 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 reason why the the kind of Sandhurst model of leadership is such an effective one is that it's kind of watertight. You, uh, it's a very good way to never stumble over because you're presenting this totally firm barrier, uh, and it's it, it's uh, your people might not might not like you, but ultimately they'll probably respect you. I think in order to deliver more analytical outputs, you need to think about um, you know that that conveying uncertainty and really being honest about where uncertainty is and where where it can or cannot be dealt with. Yeah, no, I think I, I get it, and I and I think you know this is very familiar to me uh, from working in defense intelligence as well. Right. I think it, I mean <clears throat> it actually probably is useful for listeners if we if we try and give a few examples suitably redacted of the kind of thing you do when you do, you know, military intelligence analysis. I mean, so the kind of thing you might be briefing someone on. Also, something I'm interested in is completely outside of this world is um, if we imagine back in the day when you were back in the MOD and you're doing something similar but within the military, um, your military intelligence, I think you were sort of that sort of area and you worked at the MOD in yeah. some sort of intelligence. How, but your civilian, your uh, military, how do those two interact? Um, how does that work? Well, we um, might get onto that, yeah. but I think, I think it would be useful. Well, I guess it would be, I, I'd be with, quite yeah. interested to know what kinds of things what were your team looking at? Yeah, the, the sorts of things you were, the information you were looking at and analysing. Yeah, I think um, I think the best way I can describe it is that, um, let's say you're, uh, you're, you're working in an environment that maybe is uncertain and a bit shifting. You want to understand what's going on. Your businesses might call this risk analysis or... Yeah, but are you, are you like on a military base somewhere? Yeah, yeah, right. um, usually, yeah. Um, or, you know, in a kind of diplomatic district or somewhere right. like that. And... I mean, basic day to day is kind of reading the news in terms of what's going on that we need to be aware of uh, and why does it matter? And that's your kind of basic uh, descriptive element. And then there's the predictive, which I think is the bit that really is more challenging, which mm. is, right, what does that mean for the future? What might happen next? Um, I think day to day, it very often feels like a kind of um, it's almost episodic. You know, if you if you've ever got into a really good TV show, let's say you're a, you know, a Game of Thrones fan or something yeah. like that. You know, it's the next episode about what's going to happen, you know, with the Starks or whatever it, whatever it may be. That's very much the same. I, you know, I'm not long back from Somalia. And it's Only your, your, you know, presumably daily life was much more violent than Game of Thrones uh, on the average military, <laughs> military deployment, I thought. Well, uh, <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, I suppose much of what you look at is, yeah. But, but yeah, it, it very much feels like you're going to the office in the morning. It's right, what's, what's happening on the next episode of Al-Shabaab? Mm. Yeah. Mm. And so, so presumably it's stuff like, uh, you know, you might get the sort of information you might get would be stuff like reports from someone who had a chat with someone yesterday. You know, apart from what's in the news, you've got, you know, pe reports from you know people who know people who've told them things uh, might be, you know, intercepted communications and those sorts of things. Uh, but you're and, and, you know, you're the things you're worried about, presumably the, the things that you care about but don't know. Um, what they're sort of things like, you know, where they might be planning an operation or where there might be a terrorist attack or, you know, I guess what the allegiance of a certain group are to, to someone. It's all of those sorts of things. Yeah, right? yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And then that all the way up to the political level, which is, you know, what, how will this affect the information environment? How will the media react and how that might affect, you know, in Somalia, for instance, I was there during the federal election. So mm. it, it, it drifts towards what you might consider more as your kind of Sky News political analysis type work as well. Yeah, yeah. so you walk and in. And the Foreign Office Sorry. is worried about how, it, how the UK will be embarrassed. How it will play. <laughs> How's it going to play? How's it going to play? Yeah. yeah. Um, 
So you talked a little bit how your, it sounds like how your leadership uh, style had to change, right? Or not just style, <coughs> but the substance of it as well, right? Um, and um, so tell me about that. So let's say if you have to, because in what we think of as a traditional military leadership, sort of right up, go lads, let's go at them and sort of bluff it out if necessarily in it. But it's necessary actually for the thing to be successful. That, but it sounds like what we're talking about, that doesn't work in and when it's more, um, when it's a different kind of environment, right? Yeah. So how did you, I mean, is it just a question you just have to be more, um, for want of a better word, truthful, let's say, or, or, or transparent about the unknowns? Is it as simple as that? And is it also connected to that, the type of people that you're getting in that environment as well? Well, I think the basic lessons of leadership are the same, which is you're constantly evaluating in an almost kind of uh, a, a almost kind of psychotic manner. You're always evaluating your effect on the environment, and, and be it the project or be it the team members or whatever it is. That's all the same. You know, am I stood in the right place? Am I speaking in the right times? Et cetera, et cetera. So those lessons absolutely persist. I think what's different is what is your capital. What do you have to? What variables are you trying to maximise? And I think in yeah, you know, let's take an infantry regiment. The variables you're trying to maximise very often are the um, uh, the the state of of the troops, be it their physical state, their kit and equipment and fitness and all that stuff, or be it their mental state, i.e., their willingness to go over the top and charge and win the battle. I think in a cognitive space, uh, the capital for me very often is people's willingness to really apply their brains and, and apply mm. their analytical thought because we all know your brains brains are hard to use they use up a lot of calories and and actually by the end of the day you're gen generally knackered mm -hmm. and actually you get to 4 30 and you, you've read 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 you have 200 intelligence reports that day what's going to make you read the 201st especially as very often let's be honest the boss isn't going to know whether you yeah. have or not you know you'll mm. you'll brief yeah read the stack for today here's what we found they're not necessarily going to dig into that level of detail. So for me, motivating people to read that 201st report is a big part of it. Um, I think it's one of the reasons I categorize the work as being very similar to liking a TV show or something, because there are a lot of people who will get obsessed about the lore of yeah, Lord of the Rings or Harry Potter, or whatever it is. That, I think, is the kind of motivation that you want in an intellectual project that's team. really interesting yeah mm. yeah getting them getting them to be excited about you know the the subject matter yeah, yeah i mean the idea that someone would get really bored reading about al-shabaab but then go home and spend the rest of the night you're being absolutely fascinated reading about you know twilight or whatever it is that to me <laughs> that to me is very strange and it's like right let's that, harness that, that motivation fits yeah. with certain intelligence uh, officers I've met. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah um so you know in many ways the, you know, whoever it was that wrote the the initial blog that started the theory that Jar Jar Binks was a you know Sith Lord, that's the guy I want, yeah. you know, guy yeah. or girl I want on my on my intelligence team because actually, you know, that's that's the out of the box thinking that's going to come up with solutions that you might not initially have thought of, and that sounds so silly, but countless examples in history of where wars have been won or lost by what yeah. seem initially yeah. like quite stupid but, but, ideas. But, 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 I just had a revelation, but, but, I need to join the army. Because oh, yeah. I'm this guy, that's me. I think you're old, too old, Bill. <laughs> no, no, what are you talking about? I mean, peak physical condition and, and, and yeah. Well, what, but um, we've just heard that what you need is mental condition. Um, look, I, I just, <laughs> so I'm, I'm, I'm just, well, it's about the task, right? So I'm, I'm intrigued. Well, I think we, we've, we've 
covered what you need to do if you get people to do stuff right i i think we we are probably a little we haven't yet decided what you need to do if you want people to think stuff i really like hugo's idea of get them to be interested as interested in it as as they should be but if you think about sort of the distinction between thinking and doing i think just a few observations really without putting down a kind of big theory but that um thinking type tasks tend to be quite generalized um, whereas doing type tasks tend to be quite specialized. You think about, uh, well, to take an analogy, a compute computers pretty much all are the same. They've got the same underlying architecture, right? You know, they all have the same same bits. You've got a memory and you've got a working memory and you've got a processor. Um, whereas if you look inside a toolbox, there's all manner of different shapes and sizes of, you know, hilariously enormous spanners and tiny screwdrivers. And and, and it's the same with the like the human body. Like the, the brain is kind of a mass of connections that sort of look a bit like each other when wherever you look, whereas your hand is very different to your liver. And it seems like the bits that are devoted to information processing um, are, are not just, uh, you know, different from the bits that are designed to do stuff, but they're also almost like all the same. They're, they're much more similar to one another. Mm -hmm. And and so I just I, I was wondering, I mean, yeah, that's it, really. It's sort of, you know, that you do doing and, and activating and actuating doers. Um, it actually is a to really totally different thing. Um, to to trying to do the same, but with thinkers, mm. um, I, th I think. There's, but there's two questions I want to get uh, onto. Like one is one is the that actually being a leader of thinkers is one thing, but also like how you turn a you know a soldier into a thinker and what and, and what your role is as a leader. Like what you have to enable them. What what of their training do you have to undo um, or, or work against, if anything? Um, uh, but but also what can we what can we bring from that to you know to civilian life what can we learn from from that process um so yeah like yeah that's a good one because i i've definitely heard from other sort of office well either intelligence officers or officers who um are in intelligence roles that they really struggle to get their their people to you know do things like think outside the box and to to be creative about thinking of you know new hypotheses um and and to feel that they have the uh, you know the license to do that yeah. the license to question think outside the box but make sure you do it doctrinally yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh, for me i think the um the sort of people we recruit in generally are uh, want to be really good at analysis right and have the capability to be really oh, they good recruited analysis. generally as sort of intelligence people. Yeah, it's in terms of the exams they have to do. It is it is the top cohort who are given the option to join. Right. So you know the the potential is what happens to the bottom cohort. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The, the you know the potential is there, and I think they join the navy. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, no, it's a great question. Um, the I think generally the people we have are have absolutely have the ability, have the potential to get there. Mm. Um. I think as an officer, very often you almost need to get out of the way. Right. So by that, what I mean is, I think a lot of uh, the a, a, a lot of the problems we have in the army are from this desire. Everyone's everyone is taught as a leader that you must present credibility all the time. Mm. I think we see this. Yeah, we see this with so many militaries in the world that uh, you know one comes to mind obviously over the last year of of having this. Per, but this 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 facade of, of huge credibility and then maybe the reality underneath it is is, is not as solid as you, as you might expect i think if you remove people's fear of losing credibility 
the creativity will come out because actually they've been selected to have right. those brains. Mm. So that, that will emerge. I think a really key element of that for me is not, not, not embarrassing people in front of the rest of the cohort. So let's say I walk into the room and I say, right team, you know, what's been going on today? Read me the stack, like yeah, essentially what's the news? If someone briefs me something and then I kind of put them in their place and go, well, no, that's rubbish, that's a silly assessment or you're wrong or you're wrong for this reason, uh, that's, they're probably never going to mm. put their neck on the line and actually give that type of assessment again. And, and yeah, so and it, I think this is this rings true with sort of other academic-y kind of fields that the often it's the most senior and the most secure in their role because they have tenure or they have a sound job, whatever, who are most willing to ask what's uh, what might be perceived as stupid questions because they don't they they don't feel under threat so they they're not likely to bluff it so so a a kind of thing you could do as a military intelligence commander would be to ask those stupid questions that everybody else is dying to yeah. ask yeah, yeah kind of absolutely clothes kind of thing isn't it yeah as well. yeah yeah i mean that's definitely to ask the questions but also in responses someone gives reads a report instead of just going yes well of course because mm. that is invalidating of them having done that work but yeah. actually if your response is really can you tell me more about mm. that yeah that is not what i would have expected mm. now in my mind i'm thinking well i'm coming across like an idiot here because i'm revealing that my assessment would have been wrong yeah but actually i trust that they're not they're not thinking that yeah. what they're but thinking they're is right i've I've sort of surprised the boss that I've done yeah. something interesting. Yeah. I've changed the picture. But my, but my interpretation of the junior military commander in most fields is that you're not there to be the expert. You're there to facilitate. You're, 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 as a military commander, you're, you're, you're essentially your trade is management and leadership. And you're there to facilitate the experts in their field. So as a Royal Engineer, you'd be like, I don't know anything about concrete. I'll learn it and pick it up as I go along. But I've got the staff sergeant. He's the concrete guy. He he can he, he'll do the calculations. I don't out. know. Concrete's hard. Um, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> but I'm, 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 is that is that correct? It's like so you you you, you there's a sort of ro there is a sort of there's a value in in being the being the useful idiot in the room when it comes to asking challenging questions. You may know the answer, but in asking the question. You put yourself on the the right sort of footing that empowers the person that you're asking to 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 enable them to feel um, more empowered. Yeah, uh, no, I completely agree, and th and that's I suppose what I'm trying to get forward. I guess the flip side of it is you can't only do that. Mm. If 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 all you're ever responding is is oh wow oh brilliant and everything else, <laughs> it is undermining of the first principle we talked yep. about, which is yep. them reading that two hundred and first report. Because if they're on number two hundred and they think well everything will get past the boss anyway, yeah, and this is where you kind of the boss is going to be impressed whatever happens. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so there needs which, to be some rigor as well. Yeah, it's a bit, yeah, that would be a very comfortable space to work in, but it's not necessarily a high performance Got environment, it. Yeah. is it? And I think with the QC, the first thing to realize is that with Q, what's QC? Oh, sorry. With, um, so with, with quality control hmm. of products or outputs, I think the first thing to realize is what, what makes cognitive outputs different to uh, maybe physical outputs or more conventional uh, kind of roles uh, is that you can't catch everything. It is impossible hmm. for me if I've, got, if I've got 10 analysts and they're all reading 200 reports a day, it's impossible for me to read 2,000 reports and therefore there's got to be an element of trust. For me, the, the quality control is, is, is the, the key to getting it right is the kind of pyramid, which is you start on the 
you start on the conceptual and then you work towards the kind of nitty gritty and the and the, the pernickety stuff towards the end. I think we've all probably experienced this go the wrong way, whereby you send in a kind of uh, a prospective piece of work to 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 someone to to have a look at, and they come back you with, you with typos and grammar and, mm. and and formatting, and you just <laughs> think right, brilliant, we've missed the point there. I mean, yeah. I at the hands of uh, you know certain bosses, and I, or clearly I won't name anyone, but I've I've gone through eight, nine, ten rewrites of a paper, and I'm on rewrite number eight. And they're saying, well, is this really answering the question? And it's like, right, well, maybe we could have got that on rewrite one. So I really try not to do that because I think that's super undermining of, of people's will to actually drive and make progress. Mm. The flip side of it is, is you know, the first uh, the first quality control discussion is fag packet stuff. You know, do it on a whiteboard, do it on a piece of paper and just say like, right, really, have we got the thrust right here? You are the headings appropriate. If that's right, then, you know, then you're moving on to write what about paragraphs or individual sides. Yeah. Only then further down the line are we getting to, you know, track changes, the, the horrible red pen. <laughs> um, just as a, as a slight aside, I noticed when Peter, it was a nice compliment you would give me there, actually, when you were talking about the person who asked the stupid questions. Mm. Um, but he said, but belies he said useful their, idiot. But no, but belies, <laughs> useful idiot. That would be the, anyone's useful idiot. The, but, um, but belies their underlying genius. Um, um, yes, Fraser, we're about half of the way. Sorry, we're half an hour in already, more or less. Right, okay. I've got a few I want, things. We've found out. We found, we found out a bunch of stuff uh, from Hugo. We've yeah. got him for a bit. Let, what more can we find out from him? Well, I mean, I, I suppose actually would. I can give you the You touched on this earlier, but this was the thing about sort of interacting with with civilians. Mm. Um, where I worked in the MOD in general, but also in defense intelligence, it, it was really interesting to watch that the difference in approach. And, and you know, and I uh, uh, the um, the the sort of boss, if you're in defense intelligence, is a, is a is military, the chief of defense intelligence. There is a sort of civilian underboss, DCDI, but really the one everyone's scared of is is CDI. And um, I, I there we had some really good ones and some really terrible ones and and I'd say like the the terrible ones were the ones who did have what Hugo was talking about earlier this kind of uncertainty is weakness like you mm. you you mustn't it's almost the caricature been, of sorry gone yeah but but it's up. but it's like really I mean in intelligence analysis it, it, uncertainty is the stock in trade the whole point is to is to work out precisely how ignorant you are. And if necessary, put numbers on it, you know, actually assign probabilities to things, however precisely you can. But that, you know, the, the aim is not to say, well, we're 80 percent. The information suggests this is 80 percent likely. Um, you shouldn't therefore round that up to 100 percent and pretend you know the answer. Right. That That is going to make you make a wrong decision. You're going to think there's no risk when there is. Or that you're 80 percent right. Yeah. It, yeah. It's not the right. Same. So right. so the, the bad ones did have that attitude. The good ones, however, I think they, they wouldn't let you off with, I don't know, or it's 50-50, right? They, they would want you to have good reasons. They would sniff out bullshit and sniff out laziness. And it's like, well, you haven't actually checked. They'd, they'd always ask you the thing you hadn't thought of. And, um, and you know, if you said, oh, I, I, we don't know at the moment, at, at the moment, he'd be like, well, why not? You could just look here. You know, that they, they sort of understood your job and would pick you up if you were doing it badly. But they wouldn't try and do your job for you and they wouldn't assume you were getting it wrong because you didn't know something. And they wouldn't do, which was the most annoying thing, which they sometimes did, which was, ah, now I know you're saying that, you know, the uh, this this is this thing is, is happening in Iraq. But I had a conversation with the Iraqi foreign minister last week and he assured me that wasn't the case. 
Mm. You know, yeah. you sort of conversation think, oh, over. For God's sake, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. like, have you heard of anecdotal evidence? You know, well, yeah. I, I worked so. with a guy, uh, a, a senior non-commissioned officer, who who just had an absolutely fantastic. Uh, ploy that he used to pull, especially on new people in the team, which is where he, he'd wait till they were giving a brief on something or other. And then he would ask a question. And no matter what answer they gave, he'd ask another question, no matter what answer they gave, and so on and so on and so on. Somewhat like the, you know, the four year old who, who is just bothering, but why, but why, but why? And his trick was to see how far they could go until they said, I don't know. And what's interesting is with a with, with an experienced and, and confident uh, analyst, it would be very quick. You go three, four down the line and, and they'd go, well, I don't think we can know that. And they'd have confidence in giving that answer. The new analyst would never get there. It'd be 18, <laughs> 19, 20 yeah. questions. And they'd be sitting there thinking, what the hell is happening? My whole world's falling apart. And then afterwards, this guy would come clean and say, look, I, w I was not going to stop until you said I don't know. Mm. Did they ever sort of cotton on earlier? Or, or did they ever say, you're asking too many questions, I'm going to stop? I'm not going to answer any more questions. No, I think the power imbalance of rank would probably uh, stop that from ever happening. But um, uh, I, I think I'm, I'm a big believer in I don't know. But I think not all I don't knows are equal. You can give more detail. So mm. just saying I don't know is, is a bit rubbish. And, and the classic phrase that people trot out is, well, you know, I don't know, mom, uh, but I'll, I'll look at it and I'll get back to you. <laughs> and obviously they never do. <laughs> they never um, <laughs> it's a get out. But, but what you can say is I don't know because I don't know because mm. the collection of the information isn't there or I don't know because we haven't had enough time to dig into it or I don't know because it can't be known. That could be a really that could mm. actually add a lot of value, and so I think that's a really good analyst. Mm. Yeah, all well, the I mean, in the, it's, it's a bit of a cliche now, but the known unknowns and the unknown unknowns, all that mm. sort of business. Right? So we're getting mm. into that. Aren't yeah, we? um, we've got a bit more time. Um, so I, sorry, actually, I'm gonna because it, it makes it sound too urgent when I say that. Um, Peter, uh, this might throw a spanner into the works, <laughs> but I, I got I got thinking about the the uh, manager maker schedule. Which we'll, yeah. we'll link. We'll link to a brilliant uh, blog post that everyone should read. Um, yeah. So this this might be more the mechanics of the, the management side of things rather than the leadership. But it occurred to me that the the manager maker schedule uh, has something to tell us here, and that I, I wanted to introduce a, a second dimension. So I've got a two by two. We, oh, good. we love a two Excellent. by two. Yeah. Um, so I've got thinkiness, which more or less is what we're talking about. The sort of the. Um, whether it's a cerebral output or if it's a, a manual output. Mm. And then I've got structuredness or in-scheduledness, right? So it's it's to do with, what are, is what you're doing, does it matter when you have to do it? Right. Or can you do it kind of any time? So time sensitivity. Time sensitivity, but I like in-scheduledness because it... Let's call it urgency. Urgency. Okay, but so so um, bottom, bottom um, left, you've got sort of manual labor, Right, pretty unstructured. Doesn't really matter too much when you're doing it. It's different if you're working on a site, but um, if you got bo bottom right, you would have things like factory work, and I'd put infantry there. Ah. So you're not. It's not very thinky, but it's it matters a great deal when you. That do you could it. do it at the right time. Yeah. Right. And then um, top left. So this is high thinky, low structure. You've got just being an artist, right, or being a academics or something. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Academics probably somewhere in the middle because you, you have to meet schedules to, yeah. to, to publish and things, but and you have to you have to teach, so you have to be in class and on time. But um, so but top right, so high thinky, high structuredness. Uh, you've got things like intelligence analysis, and you've got programming, and you've got 
lots of um, lots of uh, office jobs where you're where there's a creativity dimension to it. Um, not not the not just pulling a handle because that'd be the that'd be bottom right. So I, but so I think that this this helped me classify different things. And I think the intelligence analysts they are they they they're working to a schedule. They've got particular reports to publish daily, or they are and they're responding to urgent RFIs. Very different from the philosophers or the painters who mm. who have got un, unstructured, unfettered time just to do the thinking whenever they want it. And I think that time sh that timeliness adds a different complexity to the management and leadership. And I, I yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. No, I, I, because I, it, that's the interesting thing about thinking to order. I guess it's, it's not that dissimilar to say journalism or something mm. as a task. You know, in that we don't want mm. that you can't just teach someone. You know, this forty-seven step process to produce an article. There has got to be some, uh, you know, some creativity and thought and cognition goes into it. But it's a se at the same time you do need it done by by today. Mm. And um, yeah, I mean, so uh, yeah, as a, as a task, I think you're right. Intelligence analysis has a bit of both, has a bit of that kind of pure cognition, also has a bit of the well, we've got to go and do this thing, lads. You know, yeah. Um, so yeah, and I, I suppose that's why you can get these these organisations where you get the you know the military and the civilians kind of they're able to meet in that bit of the Venn diagram. Mm. Um, um, well, I'd like to encourage us to ask just one more burning question of, H of Hugo, if we can. However, we don't quite have time for that. But what I do want to do, well, first of all, I'm going to ask loads a, more we should we yeah, could have covered. But I mean, yeah. um, I'm, but I'm going to ask a question. Yeah, well, but, what but, are we going to ask Hugo yeah, yeah. The, yeah, yeah, question. the question? The question. Um, but, the, but actually, before we do, because it's just a fun thing we do, but anything else that we've missed? Anything you feel that, um, anything you want to say, Hugo? Oh, when is, is there been a time where, where it went horribly wrong? When was the worst bit of what was the worst bit of leadership you ever you ever exerted? <laughs> I mean, there's so many examples for me. <laughs> I think uh, uh, maybe I could slightly amend the question and say the worst the worst I've ever seen, which was uh, a uh, when I was out in in West Africa, there was a uh, a conference being run amongst the international community on women, peace, and security. It's, cutting edge new field that's moving well, into the, all these all men speakers is that what you were saying? well well the first speaker was male and uh, he came out and i think he was some senior official who'd organized the conference uh and he clearly had he had uh, he had two things in his mind for his opening speech which were that he knew that women peace and security was a field that was broadly positive <laughs> he'd heard of it uh, and he knew what the words women peace and security <laughs> meant and i think that was the limit of his knowledge on the topic and yet he dragged out what could only be described as a sort of 25 minute speech uh, in which he said the words women, peace and security approximately once every four or five <laughs> seconds for that time. Uh, and it was it was just a phenomenal bit of showmanship. All of the TED talk blaster, you yeah, know, yeah, yeah. marching up and down the stage and just absolutely no substance. And I think uh, what was really interesting to me was just the almost no reaction amongst the crowd. And by the end, you know, everyone just claps and moves on. Mm. And you wouldn't if you if you were a fly on the wall, you wouldn't have known that there was no substance to it. And so I think, yeah, maybe in terms of in terms of bravado, in terms of facade, that's probably the best yeah, example. Confidently I've seen. delivered bullshit can get you a very long way. <laughs> Absolutely. Really yeah. Um, so I've got a question I want to ask, which we always ask of our of our of our guests who come. Uh, before we do, sort of slightly connected to that, I mean just observing you, um, it's interesting because I can sort of see why you do what you do, I think, right? Because to, to me and my untrained eyes, um, and all three of you here will have met way more military people than me, in terms of the way you look, 
and the way you sound, to me, you seem sort of archetypal British. Follow officer. him anywhere, wouldn't you? Yeah, I would. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Go. <laughs> yes, sir. Um, He's a sausage from the sausage factory. Yeah, and but but also but 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 the style in which you deliver what you say. However, um, when I'm listening to the content of what you're saying, and it is this kind of thinky kind of stuff, okay, which I've not always seen or I don't associate with British Army officers. Um, but that sounds like a. a, a a criticism of the army that it's not. Um, what's my point? My well, point. actually, but uh, my point is, I think you're an interesting guy. Yeah, but good. Thank you. Because that's why we. That's why we got him on. That's why we got him on. Yeah, but actually, we haven't got time to go into it, so I won't. But I, it is worth saying that what people think of as sort of a typical military officer. There is actually a lot of evidence. It's almost the yeah. opposite. Like, there, like there, there's quite a high percentage of introverts. Um, you, you get a predominance of like thinking Myers Briggs types. Mm. Um, and and I know like someone, I, I, my our old boss actually, um, who was the sort of head of our the director of our section. He was a former Inc Corps officer, and he had his Myers Briggs type. And he 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 was shocked to discover that he was a kind of an introverted people person mm. and um, he he had to undergo some personal reassessment but he emerged <laughs> at the end actually content with that and discovered that quite a lot of his contemporaries were the same that actually it's about understanding people it's not about mm. you know telling people what to do and, and actually I think as Nick was saying that I think a lot of that is actually perhaps projection rather than actually what's going on anyway if you didn't do what you do if you hadn't done what you've done what would you do in terms of what's your alternative career? Who's that's, the other uh, Hugo Marino the out there? Because when the I parallel the word, universe, one. yeah, yeah, parallel universe, the parallel Hugo Marino. I mean, even just the words as, as, as an artist or a sculptor or um, a Ferrari driver. I don't know what. Um, what would you do? Well, I think working in a rank structure burns grows in everyone a, a sense of kind of wanting to screw the man and i think <laughs> I, I, I think probably grow, true, growing yeah. gr uh, growing dreadlocks listening to rage against the machine and living on some probably you know uh, foreign uh, sandy beach would be a pretty good way forward yeah G getting up when you want great Absolutely, yeah. No one tells you. We'll see how long that lasts. Yeah, yeah. He'll be ironing his pants within a couple of days. <laughs> I wouldn't be able to take it. I'm the yeah. same. I've done it for so many years now. I leap out of bed at five o'clock, and I just—it's just in me now. Um, but give me something more specific, because yes, I like that sort of desert island, sort of just bumming around for a bit. But um, what would I, the, what's, I think, the, what's your second? What's your B tier calling? I think for me, what I've what I've really missed is the creativity because I think uh, as much as I as much as I view it as being a really important point of delivering uh, cognitive type project projects in the way that we've talked about, uh, it's not always received well, and you you try and put a little bit of. Uh, a little bit of personality or a little bit of flair or, or whatever it may be, our artistic license into a brief in a military context, not always going to go down super well. And I have I have got in trouble for that in the past. Uh, so I think, yeah, maybe uh, maybe shifting towards the journalism or the kind of uh, your content production in any other kind of way where you can put a bit more of your soul into it. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. yeah we I mean, I think it's fair to say that. Uh, sticking it to the man was one of the reasons we, we left DI to set our own company up. Yeah. And now we are the man. So there you, there you yeah, go. Yeah. 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 All right. Um, we have to wrap it up there, unfortunately. Um, that was fascinating. That was brilliant. Um, it was really nice insight. So thank you very much, Hugh. I hope so. Thanks so much. Yeah, so we'll stop there. Thank you, as always, uh, to listening to the Cognitive Engineering Podcast. I'm Fraser McGrew. We've been here with Peter Cockle and Nick Hare of Aleph Insights. And thanks, of course, also to our guest, um, Hugo Marino. Thank you very much for coming here today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And goodbye. <laughs>